Gracious Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three, we come before you this morning asking for your grace and for your help as we, we journey on through your holy inspired word. Give to us, we pray, ears to hear. Let us hear your word for all that it is. Give to us minds, though finite. Give to us minds that apprehend your truth. Give to us hearts. Hearts, though they sway to and fro. Give to us hearts that believe. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. I become less so that you and you alone can become more. I do pray that you move me out of the way this morning and that you and you alone are glorified, that you and you alone are exalted. Let your people not hear me or see me, but hear you. Speak to us this morning in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, once again, good morning. I greet you in the name of the Lord and welcome you on this Lord's Day as we continue to study our series, First Things, a study through Genesis chapters 1 through 3. The last time that we were together, we considered the first verse of God's holy inspired word, which is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. From the moment that we first open God's holy inspired word, we are immediately confronted and arrested with the reality that God alone created all things. Genesis 1-1 is God's grand crescendo point to the world that God alone is the creator of all creation belongs to God because the act of creating is an activity that is exclusively exclusively to God or it is an activity that exclusively belongs to God only God can create we were encouraged by the fact that since only God can create only God is sovereign And therefore, our trust is found in God and in God alone. We learn that God created all things out of nothing. Ex nihilo. God created all things out of nothing. And it is a a difficult truth for many people to accept. But why? Because we're creatures. Because we only know life from a creaturely point of view. Many of us ask How is it that there is nothing and God just made all things just by speaking his word? It is by faith. And we must remember, as we talked about last week, that that we are created beings, that we only know things from a creaturely point of view. And we must not seek to try to eliminate that creator creature distinction. That line must never be eliminated. It must always be bold that God is creator and we are the creatures the Bible says in Hebrews eleven three, by faith, we understand that the universe was created. How? By the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God did not have any assistance when he created all things. There were no pre-existent tools. There were no pre-existent resources outside of God that God used when he created all things. No, he created all things. Out of nothing. And brothers and sisters, that is something that you just have to accept. And you have to accept that by faith. And if you can't accept it, then then read no further throughout the Bible. 
Because if you can't accept that God created all things by the power of his word, what will you do when you run into donkey do- talk, talking donkeys? What will you do when you run into parting seas or when you run into the God man who was raised from the dead and who is now seated at the right hand of the father? If you can't accept that God created all things by the power of his word, then read no further. We finally learned that God created all things in two realms, the realm of heaven and the realm of earth. Brothers and sisters. Verse 2 did not proceed verse 1. Verse 2 did not come before verse 1. Verse 1 is not some heading for us. And then creation begins in verse 2. No, creation begins in verse 1. God first made heaven. And then God made the earth. Some may ask, was there a gap between verse 1 and verse 2? No. How do we know? Because God does not tell us that there is a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. And brothers and sisters... Where scripture is silent, we too close our mouths. Where scripture is silent, we too close our mouths. And we'll get to that later on in this sermon. As we study through verses in Genesis, and as we study through all of God's holy inspired word, we must equip ourselves with a fundamental principle of biblical interpretation. Now write this down if you're taking notes. That fundamental uh, principle is this. The development of biblical revelation is progressive. If you're taking notes, write this down. The development of biblical revelation is progressive. Meaning this, to understand a particular text of a scripture, we must see how that text fits into the entirety of biblical revelation. Why? As we study through a particular passage, we will often find that later passages of scripture comment on that passage and therefore shed more light on earlier passages or reveal or tell us more about that passage than was initially revealed. That is simply to say that later passages of scripture describe and explain earlier passages of scripture in a fuller and more complete sense. Biblical revelation is progressive. What is sim- what it, which is simply to say this, biblical revelation is progressive, and as it progresses, Scripture interprets Scripture. Are you with me? As we study through the Bible, we will find what a certain passage meant in its own time, in its own context, was in a sense often incomplete. Not that it didn't take place. And not that it didn't mean what it meant when it took place, but there was a fuller meaning that was not yet fully revealed. Amen. As biblical revelation progressed, the fuller meaning of that text, of that moment, whatever that experience was, that scripture is, became clearer and clearer. You see this, whether you know it or not, every time you read through the Bible. When Abraham was called by God to sacrifice his son... Abraham goes, and as he's about to stick the knife into his son, to sacrifice his son, the angel of the Lord called Abraham to not lay a finger on his son. And was Abraham relieved? Of course he was relieved. But did he understand the fuller meaning of a father sacrificing his son? No, 
But when we see the Lord Jesus Christ revealed, we, we see that it's pointing to Christ, the Son of God, who was killed, who was slaughtered for the sins of his people. That's the greater meaning of that text that is later explained for us. We read of Jonah being in the belly of the great fish. How long? Three days and three nights. For Jonah, it was a death-like experience, but its full meaning of death was not fully comprehended or revealed until the Lord Jesus Christ pointed to his death and him being buried three days and three nights. And then the fulfillment or the, the fullness of Jonah's experience was then fulfilled or revealed. Are you with me? Scripture does this all throughout the Bible. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that Melchizedek's lack of a genealogy was intended to tell us about the eternality of Christ and his priesthood. Do you see how scriptures in Genesis, much later in the book of Hebrews, makes more sense? Because scripture, revelation, is progressive, and scripture interprets scripture. In other words, again, Early biblical revelation establishes patterns. If you're taking notes, write down the word patterns. Patterns that we should expect to see unpacked more and more as biblical revelation progresses. Brothers and sisters, these are but a few examples of the many types. Write that word down. Shadows. Write that word down. Symbols and patterns. Did I say that already? That are presented to us in Scripture. And that are progressively revealed to us as scriptural revelation progresses. If you'd like to read a book on that, what is biblical theology by James Hamilton? What is biblical theology by James Hamilton? Great book to read on shadows, types, patterns. Now, as we journey through into verse two and into the rest of God's holy word, let us be mindful of this fundamental principle. Of interpretation, because we will see it unfold here in the book of Genesis chapter one. Let us stand for God's holy word. Genesis chapter one, verse one and two. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the over the face of the waters. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. Please be seated. There are just three points that we have this morning with some encouragement toward the end. Number one, God did not create the world in chaos. Number one, God did not create the world in chaos. Brothers and sisters, what do you think of when you read verse 2? The second verse of Genesis. What do you read or what do you imagine? How have you imagined the scene? Have you imagined a world that is raging and utter chaos? Have you imagined that the world was initially in disarray, disorganized, and in absolute chaos? What do you think of when you read And the earth was formless and void and darkness. What do you think of? Was the world an uncontrolled force that raged chaotically out of control? Was darkness ruling over the earth? Did the world need to be contained? Was there chaos until God came and made cosmos? 
This is the dominant view. Believe it or not, among the average evangelical believer, the person who just confesses Christ as their, as their Savior, they, they commonly believe that the world was in some kind of disarray, disorder, disorganization in the beginning before God came and controlled what was out of control. Just for my own curiosity, how many of us believed that? Don't be afraid. I did. You did too. There's great danger in believing that. The danger in that kind of belief is Genesis 1, first of all, does not give us even the slightest hint that there is anything outside of the sovereign control, direction, and government of the God who created all things. And if we say that the world was initially chaotic, then it must follow that God made the world chaotic. Which must cause us to ask, does God make things in chaos? Does God make things disorganized? Or is God a God of order? God does not create things in chaos. And could it be that the good and great God of the universe would create anything in disarray? No, there is not chaos in Genesis 1-2. There is not a world that needed to be contained or controlled or somehow corralled by God. That's a myth, brothers and sisters. It's a myth that belongs to pagan religions and to false gods. No, God does not create chaos. All that God creates, all that God makes is good. And not just good, the Bible says that it is very good. Isaiah forty five eighteen. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty or chaotic. He formed it to be inhabited. So God did not create the world in chaos. But prepared the world so that it could be inhabited by man. So if the world was not initially chaotic. What was the state of the world when it was created? Second point, the world without form and void. Second point, the world without form and void. Look at verse two. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What was the world like when God first called the world into existence by the power of his word? The Bible tells us the world was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. The world was once a place that was not fit for man to live in. The world as it is now was not what it was. As we live in this world now, it is habitable for us. We are able to live in this world because God has made this world habitable it was first without form it was void unfit for man to live in the world was initially as it was created uninhabitable and that is the the at the heart of the language of this verse habitability unlivable verse two uses interesting language to describe this initially uninhabitable world. The Bible says that the earth was formless and void. If you're taking notes, write those two words down, formless and void. They are words that appear in other places throughout Scripture to describe 
habitability, livability. When these words appear, they are presenting to us. Now, here's here's the, the thing that we talk about in the beginning, a pattern. When these words appear, they are presenting to us a pattern of what? Of what formless and void is like and what it is like when God creates the world or when God creates. Turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter four. Jeremiah chapter four. Israel had once again broken covenant with God and they were in exile. Jeremiah describes the land of Israel as a desolate wasteland, a place that is not fit for human existence. And what words does Jeremiah use to describe the land of Israel? Look at Genesis or uh, Jeremiah chapter four, verse 23. I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. And to the heavens, and they had no light. I looked on the mountain, and behold, they were quaking. And the hills moved to and fro. I looked, and behold, there was no man. And all the birds of the air had fled. I looked, and behold, the fruitful land was a desert. And all its cities were laid in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the the whole land shall be a desolation. Yet I will not make a full end. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't it sound familiar? Especially when you read verse 23. The land was empty. It was without form. It was void and it was dark. What is Jeremiah doing? Jeremiah uses the language of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2. In reference to the earth that was not ready for any man to live in at that point. Or for Israel to live in at that point. The land of Israel was not fit for any person to live in. in. It was a desolate wasteland. But he uses that, that, that image of Israel to point to what the beginning was like. Do you see that? He uses the, the land of Israel as a pattern or an example of what the earth initially was like. And as we journey on through the days of creation in Genesis, we see how God created the world so that each of his creation may dwell or live within, pointing to, leading up to the pinnacle of his creation, man. In Genesis 1, everything is leading to creation being made for man or being made ready for man. The world was not yet ready for man to dwell within, but man is in view here. The heavens are created for the stars to inhabit them. The sea and the sky are created for the fish and the bird to inhabit them. The dry land was created for the animals to inhabit. And the summit of of God's creation, not, not just man and not just Eden, but Eden created for man, for Adam, Adam to inhabit. Are you with me? All of this is accomplished by our masterful, creator, the only designer, the perfect architect. But at this point, the earth is formless and void, not yet ready for man to inhabit. Let's go to our third point then. What else was the earth like? Third point, it is a watery deep. 
or the watery deep. Genesis 1-2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let me just say to you as we go to this portion of the text, this would be uh, 2B, I am once again out of my depths when we come to this portion of this verse. This is, this is a, a difficult verse to interpret. It's a difficult verse because we don't know what a watery world is like. So let, let's, let's go with what we do know. Let's go with what God has revealed to us. The word for deep is tehom, T-E-H-O-M, T-E-H-O-M. It is a word that appears in Scripture. And when it appears to home, it is referring to the deepest parts of the earth where the reservoirs of earth's waters reside, the deepest parts of the earth. Now, the difficulty is this, trying to describe what that's like. Trying to describe what that is. Now, let's get back to the note that we made in the beginning. Where we do not know the details on a given passage... We must not fill in the blanks with our own ideas. You with me? Where we do not know the details of a given passage, we must not fill in the details with our own ideas. That's called eisegesis. We don't read into the text what the text does not give us. We stand under Scripture, not over Scripture. Now, what does the Bible say about this text? We do have things that the Bible comments. Let's go to Second Peter, chapter three and verse five. Turn there, please, quickly. Second Peter, chapter three and verse five. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago, that the earth was formed out of water. And that through water, by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged, covered with water, and perished. So what do we conclude about Genesis and what Second Peter is saying, or what Peter is saying here in Second Peter? Listen close. We would be in error if we concluded that the world was initially covered in water. And that is simply just a metaphor. Are you with me? We would be in error if we said a water world or the world being covered with water. That's just a metaphor. The Bible doesn't mean what it says there. The Bible does mean what it says there. In Genesis 1-2, the Bible describes a real world. This world. That was formless, that was void, that was dark, that was uninhabitable for man. And that world was covered by water. Can you imagine that? A world covered in water. We would also be in error if we tried to describe what that was like. Are you with me? We would be in error if we said it's just a metaphor. And we would also be in error if we said, no, it's real. And let me tell you what it's like. We don't know. We are not given those details. So we don't go any further than what the text gives us. And, and brothers and sisters, 
let me slow our minds down because I can automatically begin to have all of us thinking, I remember that movie Water, Water World. Maybe it was like that. Slow down. Okay. Who was doing that? Anybody? Don't do that. <laughs> we can get lost in that text. Here's how we can get lost in the text. We can get lost in that text trying to conjure up vague ideas and even maybe false ideas of what the world was initially like. And in the process, completely overlook the wonderful patterns that God is clearly revealing to us. So we could focus on the things that God is not revealing to us and miss the things that God clearly is revealing to us. If we focus only on, I wonder what water world was like and just like sit around and trip out. Can you imagine water world? No, that's not the point of the text. You may recall at the outset of this sermon, we spoke about how Genesis establishes patterns that scripture continues to use as revelation progresses. There is another term that is worthy of our consideration in Genesis chapter one and verse two, and it is. A pattern, really, not a term, but a pattern that we want to consider now. In Genesis 1-2, the world is created out of water and through water. If you're taking notes, write that down as well. The world is created out of water and through waters. We see that the Spirit is doing what? Hovering over this process as creation is coming forth. Do you see that? The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters as creation, a new creation, is coming forth. As scriptural revelation progresses, we see a pattern that God creates through water and spirit. Go to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8 and verse number 1. Genesis chapter 8 and verse number 1. Are we there? But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow. Keep that word there. Wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. Look at your Bibles, please. You need to see that. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were in that were with him in the ark. Look at that. And God made a wind blow over the earth. And what happens when the wind blew? The waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens were, was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. And at the end of 150 days, the waters abated. You see that? The account of the flood is a destruction of the old world. This in Genesis chapter eight is a new creation account. We see the spirit doing what? Is the spirit even there? Is he? Look at your Bibles. Don't stare at me. Look at your Bibles. Is the spirit there? Do you see him there? Where where is he? He's the wind that blows. He is the wind that blows over the earth. It's the same word. The spirit, a wind that blows is the same word for spirit. Ruach. 
It's the same word. It blows over the watery deep. And what happens when the spirit of God blows over the watery deep? The new creation emerges. The new creation emerges. The waters, the waters recede and they go down as the spirit of God blows over and the new creation rises. <laughs> this is a new creation account that follows the pattern in Genesis 1-2. And it is consistent. It is a consistent pattern throughout Scripture. You don't believe me? Let's go. Consider the Exodus. Israel was facing death and destruction against the Red Sea. And what does God do? God manifests His presence in the pillar of fire and through a cloud. And what does He do? He brings Israel through the waters, He splits the waters. He splits the Red Sea. And then what does Israel become to God? They become God's new creation. And how do we know that? God establishes a covenant with them. He is establishing a new relationship with them through covenant, through his for his own good pleasure and for his glory. And brothers and sisters, what did the Apostle Paul call that? You know what he called it? You know what Peter called it? A baptism. A baptism where the spirit of God blows over a dead person and that dead person becomes a new creation in Christ. How? By going down through the waters and by emerging a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's a pattern that is consistent through scripture. We see the presence of God bringing the people of God through the water and they become a new creation of God. Whether it was the new creation in Genesis or in Genesis chapter 8, or whether it was the people of Israel coming through the Exodus waters, God is creating by spirit and by water a new people, a new creation. What about the Lord Jesus? At the outset of his ministry, what does the Lord Jesus do? He goes to the Jordan, to the Jordan rivers to be baptized by John. He descends into the water. And what does he do? He ascends and comes out. And what begins? The work of the ministry, the, the messianic work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the son of God. He pleased the father. He is the new creation and brings in the dawn of a new creation in his death and in his resurrection. After the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, do we see this pattern anymore? Of course, at Pentecost, the church was baptized by the Holy Spirit who comes in, in, in tongues of fire, signifying the new age has come. The powers of the new creation were poured out on the church in full to all those who repented and were baptized in Christ Jesus, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What does the Lord Jesus say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of what? Of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. You see that? What is the water? It is the creative power of God to regenerate, to bring to life that which was dead. To cause one to be born again, to make one a new creation. If we are in Christ, what are we? What does Second, uh, Second Corinthians say? We are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. If we've died with him, we will also be raised with him. Don't be confused. We're not teaching baptismal regeneration. We're not Presbyterians. I said that. I said that because someone's here. <clears throat> no. We are saved 
through repenting of sin, trusting in Christ alone. And as we recognize our sin, as we recognize that we are only saved by Christ and by Christ alone, we make confessions of faith and we do so in the waters of baptism, knowingly, not against our will, but knowingly we make confessions of faith and baptism is more than just I, I, and it is this. And it is so much more that scripture reveals. I am, I am, uh, I am connecting myself with Christ. I am associating myself with Christ. I am identifying myself with Christ in this baptism. Yes, but scripture gives us so much more as well. Scripture draws from Genesis 1, 2, Genesis 8, the Exodus, the baptism of Christ, Pentecost, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these are just a few things that are all pointing to the symbolic nature of baptism. God creates through water and spirit. Do you think the focus of Genesis 1, 2 is just to cause us to to think and wonder what a water world would be like? No. There is, and do you see that now? That there is so much more than just, hey, wow, a water world, trip out, eh? There's so much more there. Genesis 1, 2 establishes a pattern that is taken up again and again throughout Scripture in order for us to see how God the Son has achieved victory over death, how he has passed through the watery deep. He has come out on the other side in victory as a life-giving spirit to all those who repent, believe, and are baptized. In the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. And all those who are born again by the creative power of God are now participants in his new creation for which he is preparing us for. That's the scope of that text, brothers and sisters. That's the scope of Scripture leading to the new creation. And, And we get a taste of that here today. When we come and we, we gather for worship in song and in word and in fellowship and in partaking of the Lord's Supper, we get just a taste of that new creation. We get just a taste of what heaven will be like. I said this last week, that you get the closest that you will experience to heaven on earth. Now, we look at each other and we say, how could it be that this is the closest that we get from heaven on earth? Because we are so mindful of our sins. We are so aware of our sin, but there will come a day when sin will be removed. And that line, that distinction between heaven and earth will also be removed. And we will fellowship and enjoy communion with God for eternity without the presence of sin. Whenever we say this is as close as you can get to heaven on earth, it is sin that causes us to say, no, I don't think so. But there will be a day when that will be removed. What a glorious day that will be. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. The creation account describes how God made the world habitable for mankind. And man's purpose was to rule over that creation. The way that God delegates dominion to man is through covenants. Through a commitment that tells man what he must do with what has been given to him. In a covenant, God commits himself to man, obligates man to respond to him in a specific way that is decided by God because he is the creator. He gets to decide what the the terms of that covenant are. 
God obligated Adam to do what? In a covenant of works, he obligated Adam to obey his command, to exercise dominion over the earth, filling it with a holy seed. Creation is leading up to that covenant between God and man. The point is this, that the presence of the Holy Spirit indicates that a covenant is coming. The presence of the Holy Spirit indicates that there is a covenant coming. Did God make a covenant with Noah when Noah exited the the ark? Of course he did. Did God make a covenant with Israel? Yes, he did. All along, we see these patterns of God making covenants with his people as he sets them apart as his own. Why? Because when God creates through water and spirit, it is always with the effect that what is produced in this special creative process belongs to God in a special and unique way. When God creates, you now belong to him. When God makes and creates, you now belong to him. The world belongs to God as its creation, which he then grants to Adam through a covenant. After the flood, the new world belongs to God in a special way, which God grants to Noah through a covenant. After the exodus, Israel belongs to God in a special way. And God rules the kingdom of Israel through a covenant. When God causes a sinner to be born again and grants him new life and access to the new heavens and the new earth. He does so through what? A covenant. That has been made between God and the son to save you. We can confirm this to Deuteronomy chapter 32. You don't need to turn there. The pattern is this. When God creates through the water and spirit, the creation belongs to God in a special way. And God enters into a a relationship with that creation through covenant. Are you with me? Let's conclude with two concluding points. Number one, God alone brings life where there is none. God alone brings life where there is none. Who were the first readers of this book? Who were the first ones that read this book of Genesis? Who? Who? Say it louder. The Israelites, they were the first readers of this book. And they would have found great encouragement reading these words. The children of Israel were were free from Egypt. Now living where? In the wilderness. In a desolate wasteland. How would they have found encouragement? Because just as the earth was initially formless and void, so they were also looking at a wilderness that is also formless and void. And they would have found encouragement knowing that each day God is the one who is providing for them as they live life somehow, some way, by the grace of God in this desolate wasteland. God did what? He provided manna for them in the desert. God did what? He provided quail for them in the desert. God alone sustained his people. When it seemed like there would be no way for them to survive, God brings sweet waters out of bitter waters. God provides water from a rock. And God alone would carry his people into Canaan, into the promised land. Brothers and sisters, but that's not all. For we too are wanderers. We too are exiles waiting for a land that has been prepared for us by Christ. And he will indeed take us there. 
But brothers and sisters, that's not all. God created the world for man to live in. God created the world for man to bring it to consummation. Where God and man would dwell and commune in a perfect relationship. Where the line between heaven and earth would be erased. But Adam failed in keeping that covenant of works with God. He sinned against God. And he banished himself from Eden or from God's holy presence. And because of Adam's sin, we too have come forth from our mother's womb in sin and iniquity. We were born in Adam as uninhabitable wastelands. We were uninhabitable wastelands. We were formless and void. We were dead in our sins and dead in our trespasses. We bore the image of the man of dust, Adam, the son of Adam, or we are sons of Adam. And we would die in our sins. We would die in our wastelands. We would die in our uninhabitable states if it, not, if it were not for the fact that God, that God brings life to wastelands. We would be dead in our wasteland. We would have no choice, no hope in our wasteland if it was not for the fact that God brings life even in wastelands. Even in deserts. Even in valleys where there are nothing but dry bones. God can make life out of those valleys. God alone makes us temples. He makes us dwelling places for his Holy Spirit. God alone can take we who were formless and void. And by the power of water and spirit, by the creative power of God's word and by the power of the Holy Spirit, he can make us new creations in Christ Jesus. God alone can reshape and conform us to the image of his son. We who are formless and void are now conformed, have shape, and the shape is of that of the Son of God. You know, imagine that. You were desolate. You were a wasteland. We were a wasteland. We were formless, and now we are being conformed to the image of his Son. Amen. 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 We dwell in him in the new creation because he sent his son to dwell with us in the old and dead creation. The old and dead creation. Christ comes and brings us out of that into his new creation. God be the glory. This passage is designed to tell us about God and about who he is. It is designed to tell us that he is a God who can take desolate wastelands, again, valleys of dry bones and bring life where there is none. God alone calls forth the dead from our tombs through the preaching of his holy word, accompanied by his Holy Spirit. God causes his own to be born again to newness of life, new creations, new sons, new citizens of the consummation. Praise be to God. Therefore, therefore, trust in Christ alone. From the youngest to the oldest, trust in Christ alone, the one who was sent by God to dwell with us, that we might dwell with him. He sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, that we might dwell in him. He is the new creation. The only way to escape the old and dead creation is to trust in Christ and trust in Christ alone. Secondly, God alone can restore a broken covenant. God alone can restore a broken covenant. Adam sinned. He failed to keep his covenant with God. 
he broke covenant with God and he was banished from the Garden of Eden. God brought forth Israel from Egypt, from the Exodus waters. He placed them in a covenant with himself and brought them to Canaan. And what did they do? They also broke covenant with God, just like Adam, just like Noah. They, too, were were exiled. But what is the promise of the new creation? Let's read it in Ezekiel chapter 36. The promise of the new creation, Ezekiel chapter 36. And verse 22, Ezekiel is right after, I think, Jeremiah speaking of. We'll talk about that later. Right after Jeremiah, right before Daniel. Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nation will know, the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord. When through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and increase the field of abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. You could go on and on. What is the promise of the new covenant? The promise is this, that God restores what was lost. And so much more that God restores what was lost and so much more. The promises through the cleansing of the blood of Christ and through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and through the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. God has restored to us what we lost in Adam and given us so much more in Christ. What we lost in Adam is nothing compared to what we have and gain in Christ. So it is therefore better than the beginning. Better than the beginning. Which is to say what? Put your trust in Christ. And the blood of the covenant, of his covenant, which forgives sins. Adam could not restore his covenant with God. Israel could not restore their covenant with God. But God provided a second Adam, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has accomplished what the first Adam failed to accomplish. Perfect obedience and fulfillment Of the covenant. Christ did that. Trust in Christ. And be saved. How? Profess your faith. Profess your faith in Christ. Repent of sins. Be baptized in the waters of baptism. Profess that Jesus is Lord. That God raised him from the dead. And that he is now at the right hand of the the Father. Making intercession for us. Profess your faith. And show the world that you are a new creation. 
through baptism show that you have passed from death to life and that your inheritance is the new heavens and the new earth. This is what we profess when we come to be baptized. And if you say, I will not do that, I will not confess Christ, I will not be baptized, I will not join the church, I will not come under elders, then you're declaring your own fate. And you are then entering the waters of judgment. Just as God brought forth water, the world in water, God also used water to judge the world when he destroyed it, did he not? Did he not also judge Egypt in waters? Of course he did. For Israel, it was salvation. For Egypt, it was destruction. Baptism signifies that Christ has passed through those death waters. The death waters of judgment for us. And that we have in him emerged unto salvation. We have come up saved and anew. Brothers and sisters, this morning, trust in Christ. And as we come this morning... To fellowship with him at his table. Celebrate that he has brought you from death to life. That his spirit has hovered over your body. And that he has brought you up as his own. A new creation. Celebrate. Redemption has been accomplished. Celebrate that it is now applied to you. His elect. The sheep who hear the voice of their shepherd. And celebrate that we will one day. This line between heaven and earth will be removed and you will be there. And you will be there. To God be the glory. Let us stand.